0: Impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Well, we prayed just a few moments ago about our building, and uh, it was great to see this week. Um, Now, all but two of the walls have been poured, and uh, as soon as the crane gets there, which is supposed to happen this week, it was supposed to happen last week, but it got delayed, they're using it over at the Melbourne Police Department. When it gets there, they're going to start putting these walls up, it's going to happen quick, so you get a chance on Sundays, if you drive over this way from somewhere else, swing by, because each week, you're going to see something drastically different. It's going to be exciting. So, to begin the message this morning, I want to ask you a question. And I'm going to ask it. I want you to capture in your mind, ideally, maybe say three words, nouns, adjectives. And you'll understand when I ask the question, I'm going to uh, kind of set it up for you. If it's a phrase, you know, like if, if I were answering the question with a phrase, I might say, an unrealistically hopeful Jaguars fan, okay, something like that. But I would prefer you to not to have a phrase but a noun or adjective. So here's, here's the question. If someone were to ask, how would you describe yourself? Fill in the blank. I am a, what pops into your head? I am a, okay, now turn to the person next to you and give them the words that popped into your head, okay? The first words that popped into your head. I don't want you to think about it. This is those first words. What were they? Okay? I'm on. Loving grandfather. Good. Grandpa. All right. All right. What popped in? I said sinner. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> All right. So I get it. I understand. Rick said, I am a loving grandfather. And we would agree, right? You're a loving grandfather. Uh, some of you, I bet you, you maybe you, uh, uh, you, know, you know, for whatever reason said, I'm a Boston Celtics fan. Um, yeah, there, see, I knew it. I knew it. I told, I knew what you were thinking. See that? Uh, others of you might have said, I'm a daughter. I'm a son. I'm a, I'm a father. I'm a husband. Uh, some of you might have said, I'm an engineer, uh, some of, You know, there's all kinds of ways that we describe ourselves, and it's interesting how we do that. And when we do, we tend to answer questions of identity by way of categories. I'm, an, I'm a new dad. I'm, a, you know, an empty nester. I'm an engineer. I'm a teacher. By our, by our careers, we might, you know, say, I'm male, I'm female, whatever. Um, I'm Republican. I'm Democrat. I'm. We might do it by race, nationality, ethnicity, I didn't say that, right? Whatever. (laughs) You get the idea, okay? But we do this. Well, a while back, several of our ladies who were in the Wednesday morning ladies group uh, read a book together. That uh, it's a great little book. It's called Identity Theft. And Identity Theft which we're all familiar with. We all see the LifeLock commercials and every other commercial that's warning us about how our identity can be stolen. But they weren't worried. This book wasn't about you know, how to preserve your Social Security number. It was the fact that our identity can be stolen from us because of the pressures of the world around us. And in that book, which there were several contributors to, in Chapter 2, uh, Hannah Anderson wrote this. In the midst of our confusion, people often turn to categories to give us a sense of who we are. We sort ourselves by age, gender, economic class, ethnic, ethnic, ethnicity, there we go, now I got it, ethnicity, relationship status. While these categories are helpful, they're limited. Our reliance on them can cause us even more confusion. Researchers call this tendency to find our identity and social categories, quote, identity politics, end quote. This term is not limited to government or policy debates but speaks more broadly to how we center our own sense of self on one particular attribute of our identity and then define everything else by it. To be fair, categories themselves are not wrong. The problem comes when we ask these categories to do more than they can do, when we ask them to hold all that we are. After all, if we try to stuff complicated, diverse, fully formed living beings into small, inanimate categories, we shouldn't be surprised when they feel tight and cramped and begin to suffocate us. Worse still, when we define ourselves with limited categories, any shift in these categories can destabilize our sense of self. She's getting at something important here. Just as we can have a shift in our sense of, of self because of an identity crisis, we now have and come to the, a shift in the book of Colossians. For two chapters, Paul has been extolling the preeminence of Christ. He has been demonstrating and putting before us his true identity, reminding us that Jesus is the creator. He is God in all the fullest meaning of that word. He is the hope of our resurrection. He is the one by whom all things hold together. It is through him that we have been transplanted out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of light. It is through Jesus that we actually can have a full, vibrant uh, life, not through false philosophies and false religion and man-made uh, legalistic religiosity, as we saw last week. And so the climactic passage in chapter 2 tells us that if we want to have a full life, an abundant life, that we actually crave because we are created this way, it doesn't come through all of the other identities that we may define ourselves by. It comes by being identified with Christ, It comes to an identity that we only get when we trust in him, when we turn from sin and repent and receive him as Lord and Savior. When we do this, he gives us a new life, a new destiny, a new identity. But here in chapter 3, he shifts, and he basically says what we often say on Sunday mornings near the end of my sermon, which you love because you know that the sermon's nearly over, when we say what? So what? So what? In chapter 3, Paul basically says, so what? And the rest of the book is going to unpack and answer and apply our identity in Christ to our everyday lives. So what that we have an identity in Christ? Well, Paul says, let's talk about that. And in these opening verses here, he begins with our pursuit of holiness, that word sanctification, we, we used the word earlier with the, uh, with the, the baby uh, baptism of, of Eli and Winnie, how the presence of the wife sanctifies and makes them holy. This is that idea of us becoming more and more like Jesus. Well, how does our identity in Jesus apply to our rejection of sin and everyday life and our pursuit of holiness and living a life that is victorious over sin and which glorifies our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what verses 1 to 8 are getting at. So let's begin. Let's just jump right in in our text and, and see how our identity interacts with our sanctification. And We're going to begin with verses 5 to 8. We're going to note that our identity in Christ absolutely demands a radically different kind of life. And you see this in the very opening words of verse 5, how absolutely serious Jesus is that we reflect him to an unbelieving world by living a genuinely holy, upstanding life. He begins with these three words, put to death. I mean, those are serious words. These aren't words of equivocation, these aren't gentle words. These are violent words. Put to death, literally, cut it off, root it out, exterminate, kill, do not be controlled by. Literally, consider as dead whatever is that is within you that is earthly. Put, therefore, because you are in Christ, your identity is in Christ, put to death what is earthly in you. What is worldly, what is fleshly in you? Author David Harbour writes that as Christians, we may live in the world, but the world is not to live in us. And that's what verses 5 to 8 are getting at. The world, the earthly, the fleshly that is within us because we are fallen and we live in a fallen world. These things are to be put to death. They're not to be alive. They're not to be thriving within us, controlling us. The earthly things are to be dead to us, rendered powerless. Now, when he says the earthly things, what's he talking about? Well, the second half of verse 5 all the way through verse 8 unpack that phrase, earthly things, and they give us tangible illustrations of what it looks like to put the earthly to death. So immediately we see that when we put the earthly to death, we root out and we're no longer controlled by unholy and sinful desires. Put to death the earthly in you. For example, sexual immorality, he says. This comes from the Greek word porneia, from which we get our word pornography. And it's a general word that refers to the general form of all kinds of sexual sin, sexual vice, sexual activity. It is literally the, de- the desire for the wrong kind of sex, for any kind of sex outside of a biblical marriage. This has a, a general descriptor of anything and everything under, outside of those parameters. Put to death that which is earthly in you, for example, sexual immorality. For example, impurity is the next word. This is uncleanness. This is a a filthy thought life that affects our speech and our actions. Put to death the earthly passion. This is uncontrolled lust. And in some translations, you might read inordinate affections. Uh, Paul uses this word in a couple of other passages. For example, in 1 Thessalonians, he refers to the passionate lusts of the Gentiles who do not know God. In Romans chapter 1, he refers to the dishonorable lust of homosexuality and lesbianism. These desires are to be put to death, rendered powerless. And then he moves on to the, word, the, the words evil desire. These are shameful desires. These, this is that word that those of us who've been Christians for a long time, maybe were, read the King James Version at some point in our life, remember that word concupiscence? Y'all remember the word concupiscence? Some of you are looking out in your head, and others of you are looking at me like I'm, you know, from the, I, from the planet concupiscence or something. But anyway, that's a, an old English word, but it's an important word. It, it's, it's referring to a longing or a craving to engage in an activity which is morally wrong. Any activity which is morally wrong and within you, there's this desire, this craving to participate in it. That's concupiscence. That's evil desire. And then he finishes out this list of desires and unholy and sinful desires with the word covetousness. This is you know, it reminds us of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet. And, and this is the desire to have more things than one needs. This is greed greediness it's a strong desire to acquire more and more physical possessions for example and you can see how while well, well you think wait a second you had all of this sexual stuff here and now you're going to materialism that's what it is it's speaking about is it, materialism why are these all lumped together well if you think about it you know oftentimes in the life of men as younger men the desires of the, the sinful unholy desires of the heart will express themselves in some form of sexual desire and sexual disorder and sexual sin but as you grow older and you go into middle age for example it may shift from the sexual arena to the material arena and obtaining more toys, and having more status through whatever the, the objects and possessions are. Yet, wherever you are on that continuum, it's all speaking of something that is earthly, that is to be put to death. Now, when you look at these, this list and the wording that's here, there's some important concepts, some gospel applications that we need to make in our own life. First of all, there's an assumption in the phrase, put to death, that we are actively going to be engaged continually in the mortification of the flesh. That we are going to actively participate with the Holy Spirit in identifying and rooting out the desires that are in our heart that are unholy, that are sinful. That we're going to actively resist giving place to them. And that we're going to actively recognize that they no longer have power over us. We're going to trust in our identity to recognize that these very desires, which can be very strong, do not have a mastery of us. That power has been broken in Jesus Christ. That's why our identity in Christ is so important. Paul says it in Romans chapter 6, "...do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires." Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirement of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace." I remember many, back when I was a a teenager in high school, I had a teacher who, to to say it kindly, well, I don't even say that because that's not kind, but let's just say I didn't like him, and he didn't like me, and we were like oil and water. And and he was always after me about something, and I was always giving it back as good as I got, which meant I made a lot of trips to the principal's office, right? Right? And I never will forget, and and I look back at it, I mean, now I realize, you know, man, he was in his mid-20s. He didn't have any idea how to exert authority over teenagers who themselves are at the age where they're trying to become men and exert their own independence. And so I've forgiven him just for what it's worth. (laughs) But I never will forget, I went off to college, and I came back one summer, and we were all out playing basketball and, and, and he had been one of my coaches, and I guess he thought I was still in high school and that he had authority over me, and he began to tell me what to do. And I'm gonna tell you something, I probably took way too much delight in this when I turned to him and said, you don't get to tell me what to do anymore. I'm not under your authority anymore. You're not my coach. I'm not your student. You're a man. I'm a man, and I'm not going to do it. And he looked at me like, whoa, where'd that come from? Well, that was years of pent-up resentment and rebellion pouring out. I mean, I get that. But the principle is true. This is how we're supposed to relate to sin. Before we came to Christ, sin was our master. We're to do what sin tells us to do. And that was the habit of our life. As desires would come up, as uh, you know, uh, thoughts would intrude into our heart, we just can give in to those because sin is our master. But when we're in Christ, that mastery is broken. We do not have to do what sin tells us to do anymore because it doesn't own us. We have a new master Jesus. And that's what he's getting at here. And there's this assumption and putting to death that we recognize this reality and this new relationship that we have with our fallen sinful nature. Secondly, let's not miss this in this passage. Desires that are contrary to God's holiness are sinful. We err if we only focus on the actual physical action as if the action alone is what is sinful. Desires, contrary to God's holiness, are to be repented of and mortified and put to death just as much as the outward actions and behavior may be that are driven by those desires. Now, why am I making a point of this? There is a thought within even historic Christianity, especially it came out of Roman Catholicism, that if you have the thought and the desire and the inclination, as long as you don't give in to it, you aren't sinning. No, church. The desire itself is sin expressing itself in our hearts. This is why Jesus said, if you look at a woman to lust, it's the same as if you committed adultery with that woman. So the inner desire has to be repented of and put to death just as much as an external behavior and action has to. And I think as Christians, we don't put those two things together. In other words, we put a lot of attention and time repenting and confessing how I said these words and of what we did. But this passage is telling us, look at what's going on inside, because what's inside is more important, because that's what ultimately drives the outside. This is an important concept to get in these verses. And the third one is that these sinful desires are a manifestation of a deeper idolatry within us. He gives us that whole list of sinful desires, and he says, which is idolatry. And on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Do you see how serious sin, sin unholy, and sinful desires are within us? It is an expression of idolatry. It is an expression within us to be our own God, to be in control of our own lives, to, to be self-righteous and self-worshiping. And so beneath all of those sins, of which these are just some examples that Paul gives us, is this inner Underlying, dominant desire to be God ourselves, to worship ourselves, idolatry. And then there's a fourth very important concept in these verses. Don't don't overlook it. It is incompatible with and contrary to our true identity to identify with sin. That's contrary to who we are in Christ. And so he says... In verse seven, in these two you once walked, you what? Once walked, past tense, when you were living in them. Our identity in Christ demands that we define ourselves by that category. We have all these categories in our lives. And, and they are legitimate categories by which we may see ourselves. Uh, one of you said, I am, and you filled it in with a sinner. And that's the category of our lives. And, and you may even get more specific. And you may say, I am alcoholic, or I am this, or I am that. And, and those may all be true about you and those are categories that have their place in our life but all of those categories are to become underneath the overarching dominant category of our lives which is we are in Christ. We are Christians and that category supersedes all other categories. And so when your desire may express itself in any number of ways, you are not an alcoholic. You are a Christian who is struggling with alcoholism. You are not a gay Christian. Let's go there right now. You are not a transgender Christian. You are a Christian who is struggling with sexual disorders and desires. You are not an adulterous Christian. You are a Christian who is struggling with lust in your life, and it's expressing itself in adultery. You are not a greedy covetous christian you are a christian who is battling greed and covetousness in your life the christian part defines the rest do you understand what i'm saying here we're never to be defined by our sin our identity in christ defines who we are and shines light on whatever sin or struggles or desires we have in our life that are unholy and sinful. And we all have them. And if I didn't hit your struggle, doesn't mean you're off the hook this morning. We all have them. We all have these categories, but the category that matters is that we're in Christ. So, how do we put to death the earthly? We root out, are no longer controlled by ungodly, sinful desires, We put it to to death the earthly when we reject and render powerless, unholy, and sinful heart attitudes. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice. The first group were examples of unholy desires. These sins are examples of an unholy heart disposition. One was the desires of the heart. These are the disposition of the heart that is unholy and sinful. Anger is speaking to that range of attitudes that go from indignation to rage. uh, Wrath is that anger boiling up and erupting at the expense of others. Malice is a a hateful uh, malignancy and meanness in the heart, the kind of anger that sits there and plots Ill will or dreams of bad things happening to that person that you are at odds with, and and maybe even goes so far to take action to execute vengeance. It's just a a deep seated anger and wrath that turns really mean and deliberate. You know, one author tells the story of Jonathan Edwards. He was Princeton's uh, third president, arguably. Uh, um, one of America's greatest thinkers and certainly maybe her greatest theologian. And uh, he had a daughter, and this daughter had an out-of-control temper. I mean, anger, wrath, malice, this was his daughter. And as often the case, uh, this only came out behind closed doors. The public itself didn't know this. She hid it very well. And as is often the case, young daughters grow up to be older daughters and then young men Look at those daughters, and they desire to marry them, and sure enough, that happened. A fine Christian man came along and came to Jonathan Edwards, and he asked for her hand in marriage, to which Jonathan Edwards promptly responded, you can't have her. Man, wouldn't that be rough, guys? You can't have her, was his answer. But I love her, the young man replied. You can't have her. But she loves me, he said. You can't have her, he doubles down. Why, asked the young man. And Jonathan Edwards looked at him and said, because she is not worthy of you. And the man is like, what? And he says, but, but she's a Christian like I am, isn't she? And Jonathan Edwards answered, yes, she is a Christian, but the grace of God can live with some people with whom no one else could ever live. And that is so true. These inner heart attitudes, anger, wrath, malice, by the way, you could add to that bitterness and cynicism and sarcasm can turn you into a person that nobody else can live with. And yet you're still a Christian because you're not putting that to death. Thirdly, you see that we put to death the earthly when we control our tongues by rejecting all forms of unholy and sinful speech. You must put them all away: anger, wrath, malice. Now listen: slander and obscene talk from your mouth. You know, recently, I was reading a Civil War biography. I, I read them on a regular basis, and whatever books about the Civil War, and I especially like the ones that have pictures in the middle of them. Okay, and. Uh, I came across these pictures, which I've seen before, but they're just always startling when at the, in the aftermath of a battle, they'll take, they would take pictures of the, the tents where they would do the, the surgeries and the work, and inevitably in a Civil War, outside those tents would be mountains of arms and legs, because they would just amputate, amputate, amputate. And so I read in one particular book, it was, it was kind of fascinating, and of course they, they did this because of the fear of gangrene, right? And uh, depending upon where your injury was, your mortality rates were either, OK, there's a chance to nope, forget it. So for example, if you got injured on this portion of the arm, you had probably a 24 percent chance or excuse me, a 24 percent chance that you would die. But if you got injured up here and you had to cut up here, it's an 80 percent chance that you would die. Same way with the legs, depending upon where the leg injury, your odds of survival went from. Uh, you know, a 76% chance to live to a 20% chance to live. And yet they did this because if they didn't, Dane Green was a 100% death sentence. Dane Green would set in and it was all over with. Church sinful attitudes are like Dane Green to our souls. When they are not identified and rejected and cut off excised out like a surgeon cuts off that physical limb, these unholy attitudes and desires inevitably pour out of our mouths in slander and in other forms of obscene speech. So the question really becomes, how? How is it possible to see these unholy desires, these sinful Attitudes, these wicked forms of speech, truly rendered powerless. We have the command, put to death these earthly things, but how do we do it? Well, just as our identity in Christ calls us to reject these manifestations of sin in our lives, it is our identity in Christ which motivates and enables our sanctification. There's a great assumption at the very beginning of this passage. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ. Big assumption there. And you remember a couple of weeks ago I told you in the Bible a conditional statement can have any number of meanings. Sometimes it's if, like it's never going to happen. But sometimes the if is actually saying since this has happened. And that's what's going on here in chapter 3, verse 1. In other words, there is an assumption here That what is said in chapter 2, verses 10 to 12 is true about you. Chapter 2, verse 10 says, "'You have been filled in him, Jesus.'" who's the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. There's this assumption in chapter 3 verse 1 that those verses are true for you. So, if you've not yet turned from your sin and confessed your need to have Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've not yet received Him in your heart, the rest of this book actually cannot apply to you. It's impossible for you to see it come to fruition in your life right now in your current condition. Before you go any further in the book of Colossians, you must first bow before the Lord Jesus and confess that you're a sinner and that you have no hope apart from him. That if he does not forgive you of your sins and take up residence in your life through the Holy Spirit as your Lord and your Savior, then none of this is possible for you. Sin will continue to dominate you, and it will express itself in your life in a unique way to you. And so these opening verses, these opening words, are actually a call to those of you who have not yet trusted in Christ. Do so today. Today is the day of salvation. Even as I pray at the end of the sermon, you can bow your head right where you're sitting right now, and you can pray, and you can receive Jesus in your life as your Lord and Savior. These verses are assuming that you are identified with Christ. We do not put to death all items that we just mentioned in order to get into a right relationship with God. We put these things to death because we are already in a right relationship with God. And so these verses are for those of you who are in a right relationship with God. We put to death all these things that are mentioned. We pursue our sanctification in the power of the Holy Spirit. We obey all that we have studied and will study because we're already in right relationship with Him. It's because you are united to Christ, Christian, that your salvation has been accomplished. And it's that same uniting with Christ that allows your sanctification to become a reality. If you're a believer, you have an inner desire to have victory over sin. You have an inner desire to live for God, to please God, to honor Jesus with your life. If, if you don't have those desires, you're not a believer. But if you have those desires, you're a believer. And so this passage is encouraging you in these opening verses to lean into this reality of your life, of who you are in Jesus in order to live for him. You don't do this through your own power. You don't do this through legalistic religiosity like we looked at last week. We, we put to death these things by living in light of who we are in Jesus Christ. It's that identity which enables and empowers our sanctification. And it does it in a couple of ways. He says in verse 1, Since your identity is in Christ, keep your heart focused on him. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. In other words, keep desiring The things that are above, set your hearts on Jesus, constantly wanting what belongs to Jesus and is associated with Jesus. The things that are above, what are those things? These are the things that are eternal, that are permanent. These are the things that are related to Christ and the gospel. The things that are related to the kingdom, these are the activities and the ideas and the the heart attitudes that draw us closer to Christ, that honor Christ, that reveal Christ to others. The things that are above are the work of the kingdom. It's the character of Jesus, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. These are the things that we greatly desire to see. And how do we set our hearts and keep our hearts focused on him? It starts with continual, honest, transparent prayer. Lord Jesus, change my life. I do not like these desires. Give me self-control. Give me the fruit of the Spirit, Holy Spirit. I mean, you're praying, you're recognizing what's going on, and you're asking the Holy Spirit to make the opposite, which is your birthright as a Christian reality. And this is going on and on and on on a regular basis. It's not like we pray once and, well, that's it. No, this becomes a way of life. Secondly, he says, since your identity is in Christ, keep your mind thinking about him and the realities of your Christ-given identity. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God who will one day come again for us. Isn't it interesting? The first verse says, if If you want to see the power and you want to experience the ability to put sin to death, keep your heart's desires centered on Jesus and all things associated with Jesus. This verse is speaking of how we can have those desires be that. Because here's the reality. There's a lot of times in my life that I don't desire to do what Jesus wants me to do. To live like Jesus wants me to live. I mean, when sinful desires creep up in my life, there are times when you know what I want to do? Those sinful desires. My will wants to do those desires. So how do you change your desires? How are those desires changed? And what Paul says here is you set your mind, you focus on Jesus. You think about him He is first and foremost in your mind. Here's what I I liken it to. Catherine and I dated and were, were engaged for about two and a half years. And there were large portions, great periods of absence during that time where she was in Gulfport, Mississippi, and I was in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and the speed limit on the interstate was 55 miles an hour, right? That was brutal. And here's what happened. As I got to know her more, and I loved her more. You know, I went from no to like to love. You know what I wanted? I wanted to be with her more. I wanted to be around her more. I wanted to talk to her more. And that was rough when she was out of town in Gulfport because, you know, a, a one-hour conversation cost $30. Because those of you who aren't old enough, you, don't, you never experienced that, you know, the free telephone calls were only within your city. Anything outside the city, 50 cents a minute. And do you know how, long, how, how much talking you can do to that girlfriend and fiance? I mean, it just seems like it's 10 minutes and two hours and 60 bucks later, you realize, oh, I just spent all the money I made the last two days because minimum wage was three bucks an hour. I mean, it was brutal. I missed her so much. I wanted to talk with her and be with her. I would get done at work. Fridays at well 1 a.m. I would get in my car and I would drive from Chattanooga to Gulfport, get there in time for breakfast, spend all day Saturday, all day Sunday, and then get back in my car around 11, 12 o'clock on Sunday night, drive back in time to go to class, which I wasn't much used for at that time because I was exhausted, and then go to work. And why? Because I wanted to be with her and I was thinking about her and Here's what I noticed. The more I thought about her, the more I talked to her, guess what built up in my life? Greater desire for her. Greater desire. And so if you find your desire for Christ, and for living, holy, waning, start thinking about him more. Start thinking about the blessings of the gospel in your life. Start thinking about all the things that Jesus does for you, how he demonstrates his love for you. Recite these and meditate upon these in your mind. Think, how should I live? How should I respond to this? How would Jesus want me to respond to this? And you will see the desires growing in your life. One final way of maybe communicating this. Kent Hughes In a sermon on the book of, uh, on this passage, at the time he had a dog. I forget the dog's name. But he made the point that this dog, from the time it was a puppy, always wanted to have a tennis ball around. They could throw the tennis ball all day. He would chase it, bring it back, chase it, bring it back. He would walk around the house with a tennis ball in his mouth. He would have to spit it out. He'd eat, then he'd put the tennis ball back in his mouth. He'd go to bed at night and In his mouth would be the tennis ball. And then during the night, it would fall out and it would be there. But first thing in the morning, he would grab the tennis ball. This dog did this day after day after day. And Ken Hughes said, you know, he's pretty sure that whenever his dog died, if they did a post-mortem autopsy, when they opened up his cranium, they were going to find a tennis ball in place of its brain. Because all that dog thought about was a tennis ball. And then he makes this point. He said, if somebody were to do a spiritual autopsy on us and they were to look inside of our brain, what would they see there? Would it be our boat? Would it be our house? Would it be our bank statements and retirement statements? Would it be our toys? Would it be a picture of our children? Would it be our job title? Would it be another person? Or would it be Jesus? May he be the first thing, the greatest thing that we think about this week. Lord Jesus, we have so many distractions from that very need. We have our inner sin and we have a a world that is pressing in on us. And we have an adversary who tempts. We need your grace just to think consistently about you. We need your presence, we need your work through the Holy Spirit to renew our minds so that in the background we are filtering everything through you, Jesus. May you become that kind of presence in our lives. May we set our desires upon you and may we be thinking and meditating upon your greatness and your glory, your goodness this week. And Lord, for the person who's never trusted you as Savior, may even now you give them a new heart that loves you so that they may enter into eternal life. In your name I ask these things. Amen.